Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin. And for today, we have a wonderful and very special guest. Her name is Dr. Marie Buda, and Dr. Buda is a cognitive neuroscience. She got her PhD in cognitive neuroscience, and her thesis was actually on the cognitive neuroscience of false memories. Now, you may be wondering, what does that have to do with pain? And actually has everything to do with pain, because memory has such a huge impact on the pain that we experience. And so what we're going to be talking about today is memories what makes them, what constructs them, how they're a little bit different than most of us believe. And we have no better guest than Dr. Buddha herself here. So Dr. Buddha, thank you for joining us today on the show. Thanks, Kevin. I'm so excited to be on this podcast. Thanks so much. And um, I just gave a very quick introduction, but can you give your background for the audience listeners? Absolutely. Um, so um, originally, um, I did my undergraduate degree in experimental psychology, and then I went on to do my PhD in cognitive neuroscience. Um, and after I got my PhD, I decided to teach. So um, I used to teach at the University of Cambridge, and I was director of studies in psychological and behavioral sciences at Downing College at Cambridge. And I really enjoyed teaching at the time, but um, I decided that I wanted to use my background in a more applied context. So now I work as a consultant using my psychology and neuroscience uh, knowledge to help blue chip companies like um, Boeing, Pepsi, um, P&G, you name it. I help them now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's fantastic. And um, I I would love to go in there a little bit more on what you're helping them with. But uh, just so we don't get too sidetracked here, can you tell us, you know, what is a memory? That is an excellent question. Um, ooh, it's like, where do you start? It's like almost like, you know, what is health kind of question. <laughs> um, well, I think the easiest way to describe memory to people, the 101 on what memory is, a lot of people think that memories are like looking at a you know, video snapshot of the past. Um, you know, it's a bit like pressing, you know, the the, the press the pressing the play button and seeing something all over again. But the reality is memories are more like Lego blocks. So every single time we remember something, we build it up step by step. So we download the information and build it up. Um, and that's what our memories are. We, we download the memories and then ex- re-experience them. So we construct them every single time and re-experience them. So that's like sort of a 101 on what a memory is. Um, without going into the neurosciencey stuff. <laughs> well, and, and there's so much depth there because you, you know what I love about that question of what is memory is yeah. most people, be, because we are actively engaged in remembering and we have done it from such a young age, we have a tendency just to assume that we know and understand what that actually means. Yes. And from a pain standpoint, it's it's almost the exact same thing. And, and uh, that's a question that I often ask people is what is pain? And people like look at me like I'm crazy, but- but unless we're actually going to take some time to actually delve into these things that should be so simple and yet aren't, we have a tendency to sort of misapply information, uh, to ignore really kind of key concepts and things that can make such a difference for us. So I, mm-hmm. I love that. I love that introduction to memories. Now, uh, when we're talking about Lego blocks, and I just want to kind of reiterate a couple of things here for the audience and ask you to kind of expound on these a little bit more. You talk about that these Lego blocks are sort of downloaded in your brain. So there's some sort of data bits in there. Yes. But then 
and I want, if you can expand on this just a little bit more, you talk about how when we're actually remembering, we're, yes. then we're not taking this thing from the past, we're actually reconstructing it in the now. Yes. So can you explain that a little bit more? Because what it sounds like to me is what you're saying is we, we have a tendency to, again, think that these memories are these past things, but actually every memory that we have is actually a now thing that's occurring in this moment of time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one way to think about it is, is that imagine in your brain that you have a desk, you have a table, and that all your Lego pieces are on a shelf on the side. So every single time you remember something, you place on this table those Lego blocks and build it in the now. And that is what we define as re-experiencing a memory. So absolutely, yeah, it, it happens in the now. And because you recreate it in, in the now, you can change memories, you can update them, etc. And that's where false memories start to come in. And um, so let's go there a little bit there is how did you become interested in false memories then? <laughs> that's an excellent question. So I kind of accidentally fell into it. Um, so um, I was in my second year of studying psych at university. And um, for Christmas, my father gave me a book called The Seven Sins of Memory by um, Professor Daniel Schachter at Harvard University. And he's a world expert on memory. And essentially in this book, he talks about you know, how memories are you know, constructive, how they're malleable, why false memories occur. So that's one of the sins that he talks about. And I read this book and I was just hooked. I just thought, I, wow, I can't believe that something that we take for granted, you know, we think our memories are accurate. They're not. <laughs> and that was just such a shock to the system. And since then I thought, okay, you know, I need to know more about this. So I started reading more about eyewitness testimonies and how you know, we need to be careful when we question people. And um, another interest of mine was cognitive neuroscience and very fast by how the brain works. So a, a natural um, progression was to study the cognitive neuroscience of false memories uh, for my PhD. Hmm. Well, no, that's, that's just fascinating because what is, um, and I don't want to be kind of, it sounds scary or anything, but when you start looking at how malleable memory is, uh, yeah. There's there's a lot of opportunities for false memories to be generated. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know you know it's really funny, Kevin. Um, when I give talks um, to the general public about false memory, I've had more than like at least several couples come up to me and said, you know what? After listening to your talk, we're going to argue less. <laughs> because, you know, because now we realize how malleable memory is we're always you know pointing fingers saying you know you said this no you said this and now we realize that neither of us could be correct mm -hmm. so thanks for that <laughs> <laughs> well anyway i can help you know <laughs> so so then what have you found then with false memory how do false these false memories get generated you kind of touched you threw out a couple sentences there but could you clarify yeah. that a little bit more yeah. So we talked earlier about how memories are like Lego blocks and we build them up. And the thing about our memories is that there is no label that tells us whether or not a memory is real or whether we imagined it. You know, there isn't a tag that you look at and it says, oh, okay, this is what it is. What happens is that our brain then looks at our creation that we've put on our table 
and says, okay, let's now judge whether or not this is real or imagined. And it does this through several means. So for example, it may look at how vivid the memory is. If a memory is super vivid, you can remember it really clearly, then you may make the conclusion that it was real. If it's kind of hazy, you may think that may maybe it was only imagined. Um, other ways of assessing it might be based on facts. So for example, if you have, if you remember your vegetarian friend eating a burger, it's probably imagined. Um, so there are a variety of ways in which our brains, you know, methods that our brain uses in order to assess whether or not it's real or imagined. But the important thing to remember is that it happens after the memory has been downloaded. Um, so the brain can get confused. For example, if you remember something over and over and over again, even if it's, you know, if you imagine something over and over again, I mean, um, it becomes so vivid that your brain may go, hey, actually, this is real and get confused. So there are many famous experiments. For example, a famous one is what's called the lost in the mall experiment, where they had a bunch of people and um, they falsely told them that they'd been lost in the mall when they were five. And this never happened, but they were even showed these fake diaries that supposedly their parents had written. This was all fake. And they said, look, you, you were lost in the mall when you were five. And all of them went, mm, don't remember that. But you know, because they were so convinced that this could have happened, they started imagining it. And as they started imagining it over and over again, it started to become real until finally the brain said, yeah, that must be real. So essentially that's the one-on-one on how false memories occur. So that's, that's interesting because, um, you know, we talked about how memory is like constructed. And so yes. you're, you're basically have your Lego blocks on our desk, our, our, our brain desk. Yes. <laughs> we construct the memory. Yes. And then after it's constructed, we evaluate the, the, the truthiness. <laughs> yes, the truth. I like that. Truthiness. The truthiness, yes, we the truthiness. The truthiness of the memory. Yes, um, yes. The, the technical term is reality monitoring. It sounds very <laughs> matrix, but uh, I like truthiness. Well, reality monitoring it. sounds way cooler, actually. <laughs> truthiness may be simpler. Uh, no, but but that's really interesting because then there is a there's there's a connection then between memory, which we take as this past, and actually imagination and in foresight then, and mm, they almost to be. Yes. Um, Almost the same thing. It's just there's a little bit difference in perspective. Yeah, it, yeah, absolutely. Oh wow, that is that, that's crazy. So when it, when it comes to memory, then, and on that, this is I, I think is important is because when we're looking at false memories, specifically, um, a, a lot of the problems. So how do I want? I want to introduce this in such a way that is uh, safe. So we know that memories can change. And we mm. know that we can have memories that we feel are so true and yet they're mm. false. And we know yes. that there are examples of this in what we would call innocuous situations. I'm, I'm sure that each of us probably has false memories somewhere. Yes. But the place that you see this often, uh, well, at least I don't say often, but from the, 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 the most publicized variant seems to be in the legal system and they have to do with highly traumatic events. Yes. Uh, or past abuse. Yes. So do you, is there, do, can you provide some insight there? Why is that because of the nature of the questioning? Is that the nature of uh, the legal system? Is it the nature of because they're of a traumatic uh, component to them? Um, why do you think that is? 
Mm, good question. Now, because I, I, I'm not as familiar with, say, the American legal system, etc., um, the, the, there will be a, a certain amount of inference in my answer here. But I would certainly say that you know the type of questioning that is done can be extremely careless. Um, some of the people listening in may have watched Making of a Murderer on Netflix. Um, I haven't watched it myself because I think it's just it's just so it sounds so horrible. But basically, the whole series shows um, suggests that there are, you know these people who supposedly committed to committing crimes only you know did that because they falsely remembered doing that because of really poor questioning. Um, this is especially uh, terrible when it comes to vulnerable, the uh, vulnerable population. Um, you know, you put someone through hours and hours and hours of questioning, and you say things like, "But you had, you know, you had the opportunity to do it. You know, didn't you do it?" These kind of suggestions they're very dangerous and it makes people, you know, uh, highly likely to remember things that they didn't actually do. Um, now, um, there has been a lot of work to try and fix this. Um, there are certain protocols that have been put into place, the type of uh, questioning that you should be doing, but the degree to which it's actually followed, I really don't know, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and this is definitely not a, a legal podcast in any way, shape, or form, but I think yeah. it's I, I, the key part for me that I got out of what you were just saying is it really is the questions that are being fed into your brain have a yes. huge impact on the memories that you construct. Yes. It, and I would almost then assume in some ways that that same questioning, because we construct the memory and then the truthiness or the, the uh, reality <laughs> monitoring is also affected by those questions as well. Yes, yes. Wow. Okay, so the, the, let's go a little bit more hopeful path then. Because yeah. um, what we know is that there is a lot of trauma in the world. Yes. And we know that some people have a tendency to internalize that trauma in different ways. And we're looking at, at processes like post-traumatic stress disorder, et cetera. Mm. In other places, we have people that would have, um, uh, for many different reasons, maybe more of a, a resilient response in the face of those adversities. So is there a way or is there a way possibly, uh, I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, is that we can start revising our own traumatic memories and perhaps constructing them again in a way that is more empowering so that we can build upon those? Absolutely. So earlier we talked about how memories are constructed in the now. The fascinating thing about memories is that the way when each time we recreate a memory, this is highly influenced by our current physical state. So for example, if you remember even quite a relaxing memory in quite a stress state, you may kind of tweak that memory you know, into believing that was more stressful than it actually was and vice versa. If you think of a stressed, stressful memory in a relaxed state, you then encode it or you then recreate it as being a bit more relaxed than it actually was. So we you know in altering our present physical state, we can start to reconstruct our past memories in a positive way as well. And I love to hear how you do this, Kevin, because I know that this is, this is, you know, this is your area of expertise as well. Well, it, it provides um, some amazing tool sets, right? And so now we're, yes. we're at least getting some understanding on why things like how you can take people in a safe space. So if you're working one-on-one -on -one with an individual or if, even if yourself, that if you are in a safe space, 
you generate a a physical sensation, a physical presence of relaxation, and mm. then we can start moving back into those traumatic memories in a in a carefully designed process, so that we mm. like what you're saying is that we can take we can start to de-threatenize these past experiences by making sure our present state that we're remembering them is in, is safe and relaxed as well. So mm-hmm. I think that is uh, I, that's a huge takeaway I think from what you were just talking about is is that ability to reconstruct is if if we can go back and use that you know remembering in a safe environment and you and tend to make those past horrible memories not quite as bad. Now we're never um, I, I also want to because this can be a very touchy topic and I want to make sure that we're very uh, uh, cognizant and we're and we're very Ooh, respectful hello? of. Uh, can you hear me? Hello. Sorry, yeah, just you just got cut off. Oh, I'm sorry. So yeah. I, I want to make sure that when we're we're not help, I don't want anybody to feel invalidated out there because again, when we're talking about memories and people have a tendency to, no, I know it. It was absolutely 100 percent true, and we cling to it with 100 percent certainty. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what I do want to just kind of reemphasize here is the fact that we're talking about how malleable memories are. That there are then techniques that we can do, which we just briefly talked about, for these traumatic ones to make them not mm. quite so traumatic. So. Yeah, yeah. So even though the past is the past, we don't have to be, we, there are ways of making us less haunted by them. Mm-hmm. And it's inc- incredibly promising that we have these tools to do that. And, you know, in knowing how the brain works, et cetera, we can move forward in, 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 in you know, in, in, in moving forward in the healing process and everything. Mm-hmm. And is there a way with your um, with your false memory research? Is there anything that people have? You know, the other thing I'm thinking about is almost like cults and, <laughs> and things like that, <laughs> uh, where you're sort of deprogramming individuals. Did you ever run anything in, on your research on that, where really kind of taking a lot of these past belief systems or that are based on um, false memories per se, and revising or reconceptualizing them? Ooh, revising false memories. Um, well, I don't think I've, I can't remember seeing anything on sort of reprogramming false memories, but, um, you know, there has been a lot of research done on say PTSD survivors and, um, and sort of helping making their memories less traumatic, um, either using through relaxation techniques or through even there, there have been some edgier studies that have, for example, used ecstasy mm-hmm. and um, putting people in, you know, that happy, relaxed state and having them re- recollect those traumatic memories helps reconstruct them in a more, you know, less traumatic way. Yeah, man, that is a, that's a fascinating topic I would love to get into sometime with, <laughs> is psychedelics because, um, that research is really seems to be taking off right now. And yeah. uh, I was just reading, reading Michael Pollan's new book on how to change your mind, which really goes into the kind of the history and the therapeutic use of psychedelics. And it was, it, that was the first thing that struck me is how it sort of, it almost seems to separate the conscious from who you are. And it provides mm. this opportunity to reconstruct, just recon- mm. reconstruct all these 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 memories and beliefs and I, I was i was like wow there's some huge implications for pain there yeah um, yeah um but so for can we talk a little bit about ptsd then like what are what mm-hmm. are what are the emergent fields or what are you seeing or what have you heard about when it comes to ptsd and in memory and reconceptualization oh gosh <laughs> i have to admit kevin i've been out of the field for a bit too long to answer that i think <laughs> <laughs> but you know, as I said, as you know, it's 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 just so it's 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 great news that you know there are these therapies that seem to be working um, to help these patients. 
Well, and that's a, another hopeful point is that a lot of times with we know with trauma or PTSD, once you have the li- the label or we sort of yeah. diseasified the process, a lot of people believe that they're broken and that there yeah. is nothing that can be done. And if you kind of like from my perspective, if you look at post-traumatic stress disorder and we kind of think about it and for the way I put it is if you're in a highly threatening environment where something is so bad and so awful in this moment in time, the brain is going to want to protect you from that in the future. And so Mm. rather than thinking the brain is punishing you, that the brain goes into overprotective helicopter parent mode and uh, it starts to generate and see threat where threat shouldn't be. Yeah. So we would know, though, that a lot of that kind of anticipate, you know, going back to about 10 minutes ago, Mm. imagination and memory are so tied together. So this kind of anticipation is going to be rooted in our memories. And so the more that we can start of revise those past memories so that we can start feeling safe again should also then help us in a future-oriented sense as well. Did, did, did oh, I make sense of the cognitive psychology there? No, no, that, that, no, that, that's just, it's just so nice to hear, isn't it? It is. It, it's, it's, yeah. uh, it's exciting because you know, the other part about this is, um, again, it can be very threatening if we're talking about memory that, yeah. that we can, a lot of people get grounded in their memory. There, there's nothing more certain than what I remember, right? And now we're saying that that may not necessarily be the way you think. Mm-hmm. And we shake people's foundations there. That can be almost threatening as well. Um, again, that similar to pain in a lot of ways when we start reconceptualizing and understanding pain. But the power there is when we understand how malleable and how these things can change and that they we're aware of that. It provides us a way to move forward in a way so that we can start moving and molding and changing the past in order to prepare ourselves for a better future. Yeah. And when once we realize how malleable our memories are and how unreliable they are, we 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 we, we put less weighting on them. And as you said, Kevin, you know, memories do matter. Um, but in knowing that, you know, we don't have to be prisoner to them can be incredibly liberating for a lot of people. Oh, I love how you just said that is, is um, they're, they're less weighty, right? And instead of an anchor yeah. now, we can just yes. use them as a, um, I don't know what, what another metaphor for an anchor would be so that we're never anchored to the past anymore. We can sort of cut loose of those anchors and be appreciative from learning from mm. those anchors, but uh, not being tied to them anymore. I love that. I love that. I love that. Yeah. And also, you know, memories, just remembering that, you know, that you, you, you created them, um, they're, but they're just a truth, you know, they're not the truth. They're just a truth. Um, so, you know, there are other types of truth that, you know, that may exist as well. So again, not anchoring yourself in that one memory that you may have can be incredibly freeing. I love that as well. A truth, not the truth. So yeah. that is that is fantastic and perfect. Well, Dr. Buddha, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I really love this conversation. And oh, no, it was so great being on this. And, you know, just the work that you do, Kevin, is amazing. So it's been an honor being on this podcast. Thank you so much. Well, well, thank you. And I, if, if anybody has any questions out there, feel free to please email them in at drkevin at straightshothealth.com. Uh, and if we get enough of them, I would love to have you back on the, the podcast. We can talk more oh, about memory. Love, yeah, we'd love that. <laughs> we didn't even get into what you're doing now and how are you using your, <laughs> your, your skill set with memory and cognitive science in, uh, in the people that you work with. So I would love to go there. Um, yeah. But uh, thank you again for being on the show with us today. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. All right. And everybody else out there, stay well. <laughs>